this is Alex Moore, lead pastor of New Life Community Church in Kansas City, Missouri. Thanks for taking time to listen to this message. For more information or to donate, visit newlifekc.com. We are in week number three of this incredible January series where we're looking at change. And this is the month we all think we want to change. And then we end up saying, no, I'll do it tomorrow. And so we're talking these last several weeks about how difficult it is to change. We all find it hard to change. Now, I don't know if you've ever had someone try to force change on you. Have you ever had like a new boss at work or they came in and it was the annual meeting and they said, hey, listen, we're going to be doing some things different around here. Here's some new policies. Here's some new things. And you know what you do? You dig your heels in and you resist. You do not like the change. They don't know who is this new person. I've been doing this job for years and we don't like change when it's forced on us. If you've been married... You know what I'm talking about. Change can sometimes be forced upon you. We're eating what for dinner? You're doing what? 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 Anyway, we're going to stay out of the weeds here. We resist change when it's forced on us, but there's also times that we want change. Like, there's times that we're like, you know, change would be good in my life. And so we desire it. We set a New Year's resolution. We buy a gym membership. We start shopping at Sprouts and Whole Foods, and we're like, there's going to be a change in my life. And then you realize, what happened to our economy? Why does everything cost so much money? I was in, like, the grocery store yesterday, and my eyes were huge. I was, like, getting ready to check out, and they went $2 for a Snickers? Two dollars? I can't even imagine. Uh, maybe a dollar heavy? Who knew? Sunfresh, not the case. Not endorsing anyone. But if we wanted to have a sponsorship, bring it on. <laughs> okay. <laughs> There's times we want change, and we know that change is good for us, and we try to change. But at the same time, we want change, but we also love comfort. And that's the tension, right? That this change is going to actually make me be uncomfortable and have to change. But I would rather just stay in my lane. I would rather just stay in bed. I would rather not get up when that alarm clock goes off. I would rather not go to the gym with the other people and have to worry about what I wear in order to exercise. Like, we don't want to change. We like comfort. And there's this tension that's there. And it's tough because sometimes we know that change is good for us. Yeah, this is a good thing. I need this. But it's still hard. It's hard to change. Can everybody say, it's hard to change? And what we do is we say, I want to change. But then in the midst of trying to change, we end up, and we've all been here. Missy raised her hand. You raised your hand. We all say, I want that change. I'll just, I'll do it tomorrow. I'll, I'll eat better tomorrow. I'll, I'll wake up earlier tomorrow. I'll I'll be a more loving person tomorrow. I won't have road rage tomorrow. Uh, I'll start reading my Bible tomorrow. And, And before we know it, we've said, I'll do it tomorrow for days, sometimes weeks. Sometimes it's been months. Have you ever got to the end of the year and looked back and found like a piece of paper? I just did this. I opened this book and it had my New Year's resolutions from last year. And I was like, oh no. I've said I'll do it tomorrow for a full year. I didn't do any of this stuff. We all struggle and are guilty of being passive when it comes to change. 
We aren't aggressive. We aren't on the move. We're passive. If change comes our way, great. If the pounds fall off, wonderful. If I just happen to wake up before my alarm, let's go. But that never happens. And so we're all passive when it comes to change. And you could say that we're all guilty of being procrastinators. We all are putting off to tomorrow what we know we ought to be doing today. There was this article that was written in the New York Times by Charlotte Lieberman, and, and the title of her article is super, uh, you know, it, it caught my attention. It says, why do you procrastinate? It has nothing to do with self-control. And I was like, ooh. And so here's what Charlotte writes. She's smarter than me, uses bigger words. And she says that etymologically, because that's what people say all the time, Procrastination is derived from this Latin verb that means to put off until tomorrow. So this word procrastination, it's derived from this Latin thing to put off to tomorrow. We get that, but she goes further and says, it's more than just voluntarily delaying something. Procrastination is also derived from the ancient Greek word that means this, doing something against our better judgment. So from the Latin, we get this title of our series, I'll Do It Tomorrow, but from the Greek, it takes it to a whole nother level we don't want to go in which I'm actually doing something against my better judgment. I know the right thing to do, yet I'm not doing it. I know I shouldn't put it off. I know it's better if I don't, but I'm going to do what I know I shouldn't do. I'm going to go against my better judgment. There's a story I used to share as a youth pastor. Um, I shared this for years. It was about a teenager. His name was Ted. And at the beginning of summer, he got out of school. Ted turned 16 years old. And like every 16-year-old, at least from my era, he wanted to go and get his license. Now, that's not necessarily true of teenagers today. I don't know what's happened. They're putting off, delaying getting their license. But in my day, you couldn't get your permit till you're 15 and a half. And on the day you turned 15 and a half, you were like, Mom, Dad, it's time to go. I got to go take that written exam. And then when you were 16, it was like, get me to the test. Let's get this going. My cousin Natalie knows she wanted that independence. It was like, let's go. I want my car. Well, Ted was the same way. He was like, I'm 16. Let's go. But I need a car. I don't want to share with Mom. I want a car. So he did what a good kid would do. He went to his dad and said, hey, Dad, um, I really want a car. I'm 16 now. You don't have to drive me places. He used all of the little persuasion and manipulation to try to get his, like, you don't have to do, I even get a job, Dad. Maybe I'll even start paying you some money. I'll take care of my insurance. Dad, what do you think about getting me a car? And his dad said, well, son, before we talk about getting a car, I want you to do one thing. I want you to read this book. And so he handed Ted a book. And Ted said, sure, got it. How about the car? He said, read the book first. He said, all right. So a week or two went by, and Ted came back to his dad, and he said, hey, Dad, how about we talk about that car? And his dad said, well, have you read the book? And Ted said, well, no. Well, that was the end of that conversation. And so the next thing you know, a month has gone by. It's like the middle of summer. And, and, and Ted comes back and he says, hey, hey Dad, can we, can we talk about that car now? Like, summer's getting away from us. And his dad said, well, hey, have you read the book that I gave you? And Ted said, well, you know, I, I opened it and I, I started reading, but, but no, I, I haven't finished it. And so another month goes by. In fact, it's time for school to start up again. The whole summer's gone by. And, and Ted comes back to his dad and he says, Dad, like, I feel like I've been really 
I've been pretty patient with you. Um, I've not pressed you, but, but we're about to start school again. Can, can we talk about the car? And, and his dad said, Ted, you didn't read the book. And he said, so what are you talking about? He got defensive. How do you know I didn't read the book? Maybe I did read the book, Dad. He said, go get the book, Ted. So Ted went and got the book, and he brought it back and gave it to his dad. And his dad opened the book to the very uh, last page and turned it back one page. And on that page was Dad's handwriting. And Dad had written a note in the book at the very end that he was supposed to read that said this, your mother and I have bought you a car. I have the keys in my pocket. The car is parked at the Jones house in their garage. All you have to do is ask for the keys. And then this is the line. Thank you for doing what I asked you. Ah, ah, wouldn't you hate being Ted? Like the whole time, dad's got the keys in his pocket and he's just waiting for you to come and have done what he said. And all summer goes by. You put it off. You didn't do it. The car is setting over in their house. The thing you wanted, but you put off to tomorrow what you should have done today. You were passive about doing what you knew you were supposed to do. You went against your better judgment. You procrastinated. And the thing that I've learned in life, and this is what I write in every senior's uh, yearbook or anytime they want me to sign something at a grad party, it's this, it's that the decisions you make today determine the stories, not the stores, the stories you will tell tomorrow. The decisions you make today determine the stories that you will tell tomorrow. Ted made a decision. I ain't going to read that book. And guess what story he gets to tell? My dad bought me a car, and I didn't know about it for months because I'm an idiot. That's not a good story, but that's Ted's story. And the Bible teaches this same principle, but in the Bible times, it used a lot of agricultural terms because that was kind of what was happening in that day and time. And so in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 9, we read this. It says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. And here's the line. A man reaps what he sows. This is kind of agriculture term. What's that mean? It means that when you put stuff in the ground, that's the harvest you get. When you sow this kind of seed, that's what you're going to reap. See, the one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. That doesn't sound good. And the one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Life never ending. That's, that's a good thing. So let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time, Oh, man, there's a proper time and an improper time. At the proper time, what will happen? We will reap a harvest if we do not give up. The decisions you make today determine the stories that you will tell tomorrow. Or you can say it the way the Bible does, a man reaps what he sows. So often we find ourselves putting off what we need to do and ignoring our responsibilities. We know we should do it. We go against our better judgment, and we're putting off what we know we should do. In so many ways, we're like Ted. We're, we're passive. We're, we're putting off to tomorrow what should be done today. And, and this is the point I want you to make, and I want you to get this, that there is always a price to pay for passivity. There is always a price to pay. For Ted, he was vehiclelessness. I don't know if that's a word. He was without vehicle. <laughs> he was... He was not able to have freedom and independence and go where he wanted. He didn't have the very thing that his heart desired because he was passive. There was a price to pay. And in your life and in my life, when we are passive, when we put off to tomorrow what we should do today, there's a price to be paid. And I don't know what the price is, 
But I'm telling you, there is a price to be paid because there is a consequence for your choices. You will reap what you sow. The decisions you make today will determine the stories that you end up telling tomorrow. In the Bible, we see this illustrated so clearly. In the 11th century B.C., we find that there was this king by the name of Saul who was guilty of being passive. He put off his responsibility. He went against his own judgment, and it really was the ruin of him as a person. We're going to look at this story. We're going to look at a lot of Bible today. It's going to be so fun. Are you ready? We're going to go to 1 Samuel chapter 9. I'll put the verses on the screen. You try to keep up as well as you can. Here's what we read, 1 Samuel chapter 9, that there was a wealthy, influential man named Kish. Cool name. Don't hear that much today. From the tribe of Benjamin. He was the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bacorath, son of Aphiah, of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, here's the part I want you to notice. His son, Kish's son, Saul, was the most handsome man in Israel. He was head and shoulders taller than anyone else in the land. Our man Saul would have been People Magazine's sexiest man alive. (laughs) There was nobody among the people of Israel, the entire nation, more handsome than he From his shoulders upward, he was taller than all the people. Wow. Now, here's here's what happens. This is a wild story. Saul's dad, Kish, owned some donkeys, and the donkeys kind of wandered off. And so his dad asked Saul and his servant to go with him to find the donkeys. And so Saul and his his buddy took off, and they're trying to find these donkeys. They're looking for donkeys. I don't know if you've ever looked for a donkey I don't know what it's like. That's what they're doing. And in verse 6, the servant said, after they couldn't find him anywhere, hey, I've just thought of something. There's a man of God who lives here in this town. He's held in high honor by all the people because everything he says comes true. I got an idea. Let's go find him. Perhaps he can tell us where the donkeys are. All right. So Saul Like many of us, like we talked about last week, when he got to the end of himself, I can't find the donkeys. I don't know where the donkeys are. Decided we maybe should look to God. And his friend was like, look to God. Maybe God will help us. And so he was like, this sounds like a great idea. I can't fix the problem on my own. I can't find the donkeys. Maybe God can help. And in verse 9, it says that in those days, if people wanted a message from God, here's what they would do. They would go and ask a seer. For prophets used to be called seers. So they're going to go find this prophet of God and find out where the donkeys are. And so they uh, eventually get there. So verse 15 says, now the Lord had told Samuel. Samuel is the seer. He's the prophet. He's the man of God. He had told Samuel the previous day that about this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Here's what I want you to do, Samuel. Anoint him to be the leader of my people Israel. He will rescue them from the Philistines, for I have looked down on my people, and I have heard their cry. 
In other words, Saul is getting ready to be appointed as king. This is what God wants. It's God's will. It's for Saul to become the king of the people. But not only is he going to be elevated to the head leadership position in the country, but he's also being given this charge, notice, of rescuing the people from their enemies, which would have been the Philistines. His job as the king was not just to have a place of power, not just to be known, but it was to actually have a function involved with it in which he would rescue the people from the Philistines, that he would protect the people. It's really important for us to remember. And so when we get to the next chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 10, Samuel took a flask of olive oil and he poured it over Saul's head. And he kissed Saul and said, I am doing this because the Lord has appointed you to be the ruler over Israel, his special possession. When you leave me today, you will see two men beside Rachel's tomb on the border of Benjamin. They will tell you that the donkeys have been found and that your father has stopped worrying about them and now he's worried about you. He's asking, have you seen my son? Well, this visit turned out to be really pretty productive for old Saul. Not only has he got the donkeys, but guess what? You're going to be the king. Wow. I'm so glad that his friend said, let's go see the prophet. We need good friends in our lives. That's a whole nother message, but that's a really important part. Get some good friends that point you to Jesus. Get some people that will take you. When you are trying to do it in your own power, find somebody that will remind you and tell you you can't do it on your own. You need God. And so this encounter with this man of God not only led to the thing that Saul wanted, which was discovery of where the donkeys were, but it brought with it a new blessing, calling, and anointing to become the king of God's people. And so, 1 Samuel chapter 13, we read this, that Saul was 30 years old when he became the king, and he ends up reigning over Israel 42 years. King Saul, sexiest man alive, a tall drink of water. He looked like a king. He was good looking. He was tall. He carried himself. That crown on his head looked good. But what we find about King Saul is that while he had the look of a king on the outside, his heart wasn't good. His heart was all about himself. He was trying to figure out how he could get out of it what he wanted. He wasn't trying to do what God wanted. He liked what God was blessing him with, but he didn't want the responsibilities that came with it. God anointed him. He called him. He established him as the king of his people, but Saul rejected God's plan for his life. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 17, we find that the nation is in this battle. It's with the people that were the enemies of the Israelites. It's with who King Saul was to protect the people. He was to rescue them. And so we have the Philistines had now mustered their army for battle and camped between these places. And so Saul countered by gathering his Israelite troops near the Valley of Elah. So The Philistine army showed up, so he was like, all right, guys, we better go fight. So he got his armies going. So the Philistines and the Israelites, they faced each other on opposite hills with this valley in between them. Can you picture it? Here's a whole army on this hill, and over on this hill is a whole army, and then there's this downhill slope, be great for sledding, and then the middle is the valley. Here's what happened. Verse 4. Then Goliath, a Philistine champion from Gath, came out of the Philistine ranks to face the forces of Israel. He was over nine feet 
tall. Everybody say, whoa. He makes Yao Ming look like a little guy. He's two feet taller than Shaq. He's big. He is a big boy. Big boy. Here's what he wore. A bronze helmet. His bronze coat of mail weighed 125 pounds. What? He also wore bronze leg armor. He carried a bronze javelin on his shoulder. The shaft of his spear was as thick and heavy as a weaver's beam, tipped with an iron spearhead that weighed 15 pounds. His armor bearer walked ahead of him carrying a shield. It was probably just more than he could handle. I got too much stuff. He is like third place in the Olympics. That's a lot of bronze on this boy, and now he's got the shield here. And so Goliath, here's what he did, verse 8. Goliath stood, and he shouted a taunt across the valley to the Israelites. He said, why are you all coming out to fight? I am the Philistine champion, but you are only the servants of Saul. Hey, choose one man to come down here and fight me, and if he kills me, then we'll all be your slaves. But if I kill him, you all will be our slaves. I defy the armies of Israel today. Send me a man who will fight me. And verse 11 says that when Saul and the Israelites heard this, they were terrified and deeply shaken. Now, sometimes we just get caught up in a a Bible story and we're like, okay, I know how this ends. Where's David? But wait. If a nine-foot-tall dude challenged us all to a fight in this room, like, he's a giant, what do you think we would do? Don't you think that we would probably look among ourselves and say, who's our tallest man? Who's our tall guy? we got to send our tall guy to take on their tall guy. And do you know who the tall guy was? Saul. He was a head and shoulders taller than everybody in the whole land. He was sticking out like a sore thumb. Who do we go to? That guy. King Saul, what do you think? But King Saul, instead of doing his responsibility, instead of doing what God called him to do, instead of rescuing the people from the Philistines, he is terrified and deeply shaken. Now, can you imagine being the tallest guy in the room and everybody looking at you and you shaking your head no? Humiliating. Now, the story continues in verse 12. It says, now David was the son of a man named Jesse, an Ephrathite from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. Jesse was an old man at that time. He had eight sons. Jesse's three oldest sons, they had already joined Saul's army to fight the Philistines. And David was the youngest son. David's three oldest brothers stayed with Saul's army, but David would go back and forth so he could help his father, who's an old man, with the sheep in Bethlehem. And get this, for 40 days... Every morning and evening, the Philistine champion strutted in front of the Israelite army. How many days? Forty days. How many days did Saul have to step up to find some courage to go and do what he was called to do? Forty days. Ah, man, maybe I'll do it tomorrow. Ah, I better not do it today. The weather's not right. Ah, I think I'll do it tomorrow. Forty days, he's saying, yeah, 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 yeah. I'll do it tomorrow. He was passive with what he was supposed to do. So one day, Jesse said to David, hey, he said, hey, take this basket of roasted grain and these 10 loaves of bread and carry them quickly to your brothers and give these 10 cuts of cheese to their captain. See how your brothers are getting along? Bring me back a report on how they're doing. So 
David's brothers were with Saul and the Israelite army at the Valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. This is where Goliath is. So David left the sheep with another shepherd, responsible, look at him go, and set out early the next morning with the gifts as his dad, Jesse, had directed him. He arrived at the camp just as the Israelite army was leaving for the battlefield with shouts and battle cries. (laughs) Soon the Israelites and the Philistine forces stood facing each other, army against army. David left his things with the keeper of supplies and hurried out to the ranks to greet his brothers. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, came out from the Philistine ranks And then David heard him shout his usual taunt to the army of Israel. As soon as the Israelite army saw him, they hadn't even heard him yet. He hadn't done that. They just saw him. They began to run away in fright. So much for the battle cries. (sighs) (sighs) Have you seen this giant, the man asked? He comes out every day to defy Israel and the king. Remember, our tall king, (laughs) he's offered a huge reward to anyone who kills him. He will give that man one of his daughters for a wife, and the man's entire family will be exempted from paying taxes. (laughs) Woo! (laughs) The king is trying to motivate the people. Saul is actually just going to great lengths to not do what he's supposed to do. This battle is his. It's got his name on it, but I won't do it. How about you get one of my daughters and no taxes? (gasps) What? So David asked the soldier standing nearby, What? What will a man get for killing this Philistine and ending his defiance of Israel? I mean, come on. Who is this pagan Philistine anyway that he's allowed to defy the armies of the living God? And these men said to David the same reply. They said, Yes, that's the reward for killing him. What? This is pretty exciting. This is just the Bible. We're just reading. I'm going to need some volunteers. This is so fun. I love pulling people out of the audience. Um, Mike, would you help me? Come on, Mike. I need a, I need a big, tall man. Head and shoulder. He's the tallest we got. How, how tall are we? 6'3"? 6'3". I like it. I'm six foot, 6'3". Come on up, 6'3". Uh, <laughs> Tyler, I need you, my man. Come on. Come on, Tyler. Yes! Give it up for Tyler. Come on. All right, Tyler, how old are you? 13. Come on, teenager, full-blown. Look at him go. This is exciting. Tyler is about the age that David would have been when he is hearing these stories. Like, what? No taxes? I get to get married? What? He is excited. And guess what? King Saul's over here. (laughs) Head and shoulders taller. All right, we got to read the Bible again. So then, uh, let's go to our next verse. Then, uh, no, where are we at? Is this it? I don't know where we're at. Uh, Verse 31. Then David's question was reported to King Saul. So, So David's question is reported to King Saul. And so King Saul sent for him. And so... I need you to read this. I need you to do it in your own words, all right? So, so verse 32, here you go. Don't worry about Philistine, David told Saul. I'll go and fight him. Yes! Say it with some passion. Like, look at him and say, I'll go fight him. I'll go fight him. <laughs> all right, I, I need you to do the next line. 
Don't be ridiculous. <laughs> There's no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. You're only a boy, and he's been a man of war since his youth. All right, next verse, next verse. Where are we at? Oh, but David persisted. You got to keep going. Be persistent now. I've been taking care of my father's sheep and goats, he said, when a lion or a bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock. I go after it with a club and rescue the lamb from its mouth. If the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and club it to the death. (laughs) I have done this to both lions and bears, and I'll do it to this pagan Philistine too, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And he finishes and he says, the Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lions and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. Can you picture the conversation? And so Saul finally consented. All right, go ahead. And may the Lord be with you. (laughs) Give it up for my friends. Thank you, guys. Thank you, man. Can you picture this story? Head and shoulders taller. Saul, he's in charge. Who is this kid? Man, I can kill a bear. I did it once. (laughs) I took on a lion, too. Okay, buddy. Okay. So here's what happened. I think Saul's heart went out to the kid. He's like, well, if he wants to. He said this, uh, Saul gave David his own armor. Now, you saw the size difference here. Are they wearing the same size clothes? No. Can you imagine that flowery top on little Tyler? No. Here's what happened. David put it on, strapped the sword over it, and took a step or two. We're not sure. Was that a step? To see what it was like, for he had never worn such things before. And he's protested. I can't go in these. I'm not used to them. So David took them off again. I just think that's fun that's in the Bible. Verse 40, so he picked up five smooth stones from a stream, and he put them into his shepherd's bag. Then, armed only with his shepherd's staff, he's got a stick in his hand, and a sling, he started across the valley to the Philistine. Can you picture it? He's got a little staff over his shoulder. I don't know where the sling's at. And he's walking down into the valley. This is so exciting. Verse 41, Goliath walked out toward David with his shield-bearer ahead of him, sneering in contempt at the ruddy-faced boy. Am I a dog, he roared, that you come at me with a stick? And then he proceeded to curse David by the names of his gods. Bleep, bleep. He's getting him. He's cursing him. He's calling down whatever gods he worshipped to curse this child. Come over here, he said. And I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. And so David replied to the Philistine, You come at me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come at you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And so today, the Lord will conquer you, and I will kill you, and I'm going to cut off your head. Whoa. And then, and then, I'll give the bodies of your men to the birds and the wild animals you talked about, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescued his people, but not with sword and spear, 
No, this is the Lord's battle, and he will give you to us. From the sideline, <laughs> here's, here's this conversation happening down in the valley. Guess who's up on top watching this? He's got a great shot. Even if there's people standing in front of him, he's a head and shoulder taller than him. He can see what's going on. And he is witnessing David, this young man, go and fulfill what his responsibility is. But because he was passive, because he wasn't willing to do what he was supposed to do, someone else is doing it. Someone else is carrying out his responsibility, and that person's name is David. Verse 48, let's finish this story. As Goliath moved closer to attack, David quickly ran out to meet him. That's the exact opposite of what the entire Israelite army did. Remember, they had their war cries, oh, we're going to go out there. And then the Philistines showed up, and they're running. What, what's he do? He sees him. He's not intimidated. He runs towards him. Reaching into his shepherd's bag and taking out a stone, he hurled it with his sling, and he hit the Philistine in the forehead, and the stone sank in, and Goliath stumbled and fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with only a sling and a stone, for he had no sword. How's he going to cut his head off? Oh, don't worry. Then David ran over and pulled Goliath's sword from its sheath, and David used it to kill him and cut off his pudding head that still had a stone sunk in it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, guess what they did? They turned, and they ran, and the men of Israel... And Judah gave a great shout of triumph, and they rushed after the Philistines, chasing them a long way. And the bodies of the dead and wounded Philistines were strewn all along the road. And verse 53 says, Then the Israelite army returned and plundered the deserted Philistine camp. And I love verse 54. David took the Philistines' head to Jerusalem. Are they in Jerusalem? No. He cut off his head and somehow or another figured out how to carry it. And he stored the man's armor in his own tent. Can you imagine how big the head of a nine-foot man would be? I mean, it's got to be big. You know, was it hard for him to carry? Was he just dragging it? Did he have it under his arm? Did he make a knapsack and put it on his back? I don't know. But he is keeping his head and carrying it around. Here's the story. For 40 days, Saul refused to go into the valley and fight. Saul was passive. He was putting off what he knew was his responsibility. And as much as he looked like the leader, as much as he looked the part of what a good, powerful king would do, he refused to fight the battle that had his name on it. And when we refuse to fight the battles that have our names on them, when we refuse to do what God's calling us to do, when we refuse to go and change there will always be a price to pay. There's always a price to pay for passivity. There's a consequence for your choices. You will reap what you sow, and the decisions you make today will determine the stories you tell tomorrow. And in the case of Saul, the people stopped looking to him to be their king. He still held the position, but their hearts went to David. And eventually, David became the king of Israel. There's always a price to pay for passivity. And so I want to challenge you today to apply this message to your life. 
I want to have you do an exercise that I've had people do for many years. If you have a piece of paper or you have a phone, I want you to grab it, pull up a note, pull up a place that you can type something. And here's what I want you to do. I'm going to ask you to type something, write something down. And here's what I want you to write down. Write down one thing that you are currently not doing in your life that you know you should be. I want you to write down something that you're being passive about. You know you should be. Maybe you tried. But right now, you know, uh, I'm actually saying I'll do it tomorrow. I'm putting off that response, but I'm not doing what I ought to be doing. What you write down is going to be different than the person next to you. That's fine. You may have a list of things. You just need to put one down. Just put one down. As you're looking at this thing, and this thing probably has some type of an emotion brought to it, as you look at what you've written down, you've had a battle with this thing. It's not uh, an emotionally neutral thing that you've typed down. Maybe for you, I don't know, I could just guess what some people would have wrote down, but there might be a feeling of guilt that comes with this, like in shame. I've tried to do this, and I haven't succeeded. I've wanted to do this, but I haven't done it. I've been, I've been maybe scared to do it. Maybe I've been afraid to do it, but I just haven't done it. I want you to recognize, like, this is a little bit of a Goliath for you. This is something that is a battle. It's a giant maybe in your life. But here's this challenge today. You know what it is that you're supposed to do. To not do it is to go against your better judgment. So what do I do? Can God just come and do it for me? Could he just, like, make my eyes roll back in my head and take over my body and I do it? No. That's not how God rolls. But here's what God will do is he will meet you where you're at. And he will give you what you need to take the next step. Are you going to be perfect as you try to conquer what you've written down? No. Nobody's perfect. But what if we began to make small steps in the right direction? What if we just began to start? What if we didn't keep looking at that on our paper and allowing it to continue to build guilt and shame and frustration. But what if we actually started? I don't know if I have this on the notes up there, but I want to challenge you today to choose the pain of discipline over the pain of regret. Choose the pain of discipline over the pain of regret. Next week, we're going to wrap this series up. I'm going to talk about discipline. It's going to be a fun one. <laughs> you guys are like, not going to be here next week? <laughs> discipline yourself. Be here next week. Because we're going to take a different approach to discipline. And we're going to look at it from God's vantage point. But choose the pain of discipline over the pain of regret. Because there's always a price to pay for passivity. That thing you wrote down, if you say, I'll do it tomorrow, there's more price to pay. Start today. Start today. Don't put off to tomorrow what you know you should do today. In fact, there's this verse in the Bible that says, for him who knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it, to him that's considered sin, this thing that puts separation between you and God. Don't do that. I want you to walk with him. And as you step towards him, draw near to him, he will draw near to you. Let me say a couple things here. Because I know this can be a sensitive subject, and some people are like, yeah, Pastor Alex, you don't understand. I've tried to do this. You just tell me to start. Like, that's something I can do. Uh, I've got a lot of history with this thing. Listen, there's nothing that you can do about yesterday's choices, okay? 
stop beating yourself up over it. There's nothing you can do about it. It's already done. It's in the past. When I was 16 years old, I wrecked a car in the church parking lot. It was my dad's car who was the pastor of the church. I had the brilliant idea that I would go buy a super soaker water gun and I would do a drive-by shooting of my friends after church. And in the process of having a ball, my car like kissed another car and it wasn't pretty and it crunched. And of course, it was the one person in the car who was on a fixed income. <laughs> Couldn't hit a rich guy's car who just said, I'll take care of it. No. And my dad said, no, you're not letting him pay for anything. You're going to take responsibility. Now, do I still beat myself up over the stupid choice I made as a 16-year-old? doing a drive-by shooting in the church parking lot with a water gun? No, it's a great story. But no, I don't beat myself up over it because there's nothing I can do about it now except learn from it, be humble enough to talk about it, and have a great story anytime I'm around teenagers. But I don't beat myself up over it. You say, well, I had years of my life that I've been whatever. You can't do anything about that. Don't let that define you. That's not your identity. God's giving you a new identity. Move forward. There's nothing you can do about your past. And there's this old saying, we'll put it up here, that today is the first day of the rest of your life. You want to live different? Start. Not tomorrow. Today. Today can be that pivotal moment. It can be that defining moment in which you make a change in your life. But you're going to have to make the step for God to meet you. You're going to have to go. You're going to have to try. You're going to have to be willing to fail. And failure is not final. And just because you fail doesn't mean you're a failure. God wants more from you. God's desire is not for us just to go through life. He wants us to grow through it. And sometimes people choose to be victims of their past their entire life. Listen, there's nothing you can do about yesterday's choices but you're going to have new choices. You have choices that you can make today to change your future. And God wants to lead you as you make choices in the direction that he wants. And the truth is, there's a day coming that we're all going to be held responsible for every choice we make. In fact, the Bible says that we're responsible for every thought we think, for every word we say, for every deed, everything that we do, every attitude, every motive of our heart. Well, let's begin to move in the right direction to where when that day comes that we have to give an account that we can do so with a smile. We can do so honestly. We can do so without having to hang our head and have regret. Choose the pain of discipline today over the pain of regret tomorrow. And no longer say, well, I'll do it as soon as. That's been my problem. I will be more disciplined as soon as my schedule loosens up a little bit more. I will start waking up earlier as soon as I get better at going to sleep earlier. I, and I have an excuse for everything as soon as. Stop saying that. It's an excuse. Just start today. Nobody likes this message. I get it. But if we're going to be different tomorrow and we're going to be closer to the people that God wants us to be, we have to make some hard choices. And I want to encourage you to do it and not just do it alone. God is with you. He will support you. He will help you move in the direction of his will, what he wants for you. He's not going to help you do it in a different direction that's not his will. He will help move you in the direction that he has for you. But here's the second step. We're supposed to do it together. So the people that are sitting in the rows next to you, the people that are sitting around you, here's the challenge. Would you be honest enough to say, hey, this is where I've been passive? Would you ask me about this? Would you encourage me in this? 
Would you shoot me a Bible text every day and be like, hey, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength? Even if that's taken out of context, just take it. Run with it. What if we encourage one another? And what if a year from now, we look like totally different people? That would be really awesome. I'm not saying you're ugly. I'm just saying we got work to do. <laughs> would you stand with me? If you would, let's bow our heads and allow me to pray for you. God, you know what each and every one of us were meant to live for. God, you created us. You designed us. I believe that you have a plan and a purpose for each and every one of our lives. And God, so many of us have lost sight of your dream for us. I pray, God, that you would revive that inside of every one of us. And may we not be crippled by fear or uncertainty of the future. May we not be crippled by our own laziness or complacency. But God, we ask for you to begin to change us. And as we're driven and and guided by your spirit, Lord, your spirit provides self-control. And so, God, we want that. We want all that you provide, the love and the joy and the peace and the kindness and the goodness and the faithfulness and the gentleness and the self-control. God, we want all that you provide. And so, Lord, would you meet us where we're at? Would you give us wisdom? Would you change our thinking where it's not based upon your truth? Would you help us to, to recognize any lie that we might have embraced? And, Lord, as we make these steps, they are steps of faith, believing, God, that you will be with us and meet us. And, God, I pray that you would transform us as we cooperate with your plans. We thank you for this time. May we not be like King Saul, but, Lord, may we step forward and move the direction that you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. For more information, please visit newlifekc.com.